Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's been 50 years since this song hit the top of the charts. I Got You, Babe, by Sonny and Cher. And it's been 17 years since Sonny Bono died after a skiing accident in California, the state where he'd served as both a mayor and a congressman. There was this section in the Reader's Digest, and it was called the most unforgettable character I've ever met. That's Cher reading the eulogy at her ex-husband's funeral in January 1998. And no matter how long I live or who I meet in my life, that person will always be son for me. And here in Washington, D.C., of all places... All right, so here we are, DuPont Circle. The memory of this pop star turned politician. We are at the intersection where New Hampshire, O and 20th all come together, lives on, heading across New Hampshire now at an 800-square-foot park, unofficially known as Sonny Bono Park. Parcel 143, as it's officially known, is among hundreds of triangle parks around Washington. They crop up where the diagonal avenues intersect the numbered and lettered streets. In 1998, local developer Gary Simon, who had befriended Sonny Bono, adopted this park through the D.C. Department of Parks and Recreation. There's a round plaque and underneath, supposedly and purportedly, is a vault containing Sonny Bono memorabilia. Simon couldn't be reached for comment, but he has been quoted as saying the manhole-shaped vault contains his late friend's congressional cufflinks, along with sheet music for Sonny and Cher's 1967 hit, The Beat Goes On. Though the jury is out as to whether those artifacts are still there. The top of the plaque slash vault says, In memory of my friend Sonny Bono, 1935 to 1998, Entertainer, entrepreneur, statesman, friend. Simon poured tens of thousands of dollars into this tiny sliver of land, planting grass, bushes, a tree. He even installed these little square benches that some folks fondly refer to as shares. Get it? Shares? Chairs? Share? Anyway, the thing about Sunny Bono Park, when you sign a Park Partners Cooperative Agreement with the D.C. Department of Parks and Recreation, DPR needs to renew the contract annually, and usually just for a handful of years. But according to Katie Raywalt... I am the manager of Park Partners and Community Engagement at the D.C. Department of Parks and Recreation. DPR isn't sure what happened with Gary Simon. Mr. Simon, the gentleman that originally did the park, when I spoke with him last year, told me that he had a 20-year agreement with the city I have been unable to recover that agreement. It's highly unusual for the agency to sign an agreement that long. We don't even do that with other district government agencies. So Raywalt can't confirm that this agreement didn't happen. But we would now never do that again. See, the idea is that park partners become the temporary stewards of a park or a recreation site. You know, we we can't have people out every day looking at every park. So it's actually really helpful for us as an agency to have these eyes on the ground and to have community members that are concerned about these spaces. DPR can offer non-financial resources. Things like brooms and rakes and garden tools. But it's up to these community members to offer support, to clean up, to beautify, to assist with maintenance, your basic tender, loving care. But through the years, it seems Sunny Bono Park saw less and less of that TLC. 
The grass got scruffier, the weeds got thornier. There had been huge bags of trash in the bushes. And Kim Bender saw it all from her front window. She runs the Hyrick House Museum, former home of legendary brewer Christian Hyrick, right across New Hampshire Avenue from the park. I had noticed the park getting sadder and sadder for a while. It was frustrating to us, and I'd heard stories from neighbors. It was frustrating to them. So Bender decided to do something about it. I said, I'm going to go apply, and we're going to adopt this park. And they did. The Hyrick House joined DPR's Adopt-A-Park program in August 2014. First step, raising funds. My staff ended up using this community project crowdfunding platform called IOBI in our backyard, and we raised enough money to buy the plants. Which they put into the ground last month, with help from community members and the neighborhood nonprofit Historic DuPont Circle Main Streets. Executive Director Bill McLeod says this volunteer beautification day was transformational. This used to be like a weed patch, and so they literally got on their hands and knees and were removing the grass and the roots and leveling the park so that it could be ready for a new planting. And then we laid out these plants, which we had had delivered, so we hauled them all over here and planted them. And although it doesn't look like there's a lot right now, by the spring, it will grow outwards and I think will fill in really nicely over time. Kim Bender also hopes use of the park will grow outwards over time. In fact, she's already seeing a difference. I've never noticed it being like a a place where people wanted to sit. But now we see people eating lunch in here. It's really fun. DPR has renewed the Hyrick House Museum's agreement for another year. But Kim Bender stresses that Parcel 143, which will continue to be known by many as Sunny Bono Park, is for everyone. Our mission is to preserve the legacy of historic brewer Christian Hyrick, but it's also to enrich the cultural life of Washington. So that means we also are really conscious of being a community anchor and trying to make our surrounding neighborhood as welcoming and um, raise it up as much as we possibly can. And that's music to Katie Raywalt's ears. She says DPR has roughly 40 park partnerships, and she'd love to see one for all of its hundreds of sites especially triangle parks like Sunny Bono Park. These little chunks of land really matter. They're a place to relax and, you know, they add some greenery and some color into the city. And so, you know, these are opportunities for the the community to really make it what they need it to be. And to really make sure it goes on. You can see before and after photos of Sunny Bono Park, a.k.a. Parcel 143, on our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can learn more about DPR's Park Partners program and what it takes to become a park steward. And do you know a triangle park in Washington that could use a little TLC? Send us a tweet and tell us how you would spiff it up. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Keep pounding a rhythm to the brain Our next story is about another triangular patch of land that's been unused and underappreciated until recently. For the first time in six years, residents in D.C.'s Ward 7 are seeing construction work on a three-acre vacant lot across from the Capitol Heights metro station. It's not the flashy new development you might expect next to metro. No trendy restaurants, no shiny condos. Instead, volunteers are building what will be the district's largest urban farm. As Vera Carruthers tells us, the farm may only be in place for two or three growing seasons, 
but it could have a big impact on the neighborhood and the city. At first glance, the sloping land between Capitol Heights Metro Station and busy East Capitol Street doesn't look like much. There's a bunch of dirt and some grass. Jessica Winter Martin is up to her knees in mud. When I ask her why she's out here today, she tells me that getting quality groceries is a weekly struggle living here in Ward 7. There's, there's no food out here, y'all. Like, I, I have to travel. I have to, take a, like a, I have to take a serious full day off to get two bags of groceries to my house. On this sunny, windswept Saturday morning, Winter Martin is one of 100 or so volunteers crisscrossing the property carting soil, plants, and shovels. She says currently she travels across the city to 14th Street Northwest to get groceries from Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. And I go all the way out there. Now I have like 40 pounds of groceries. I got four bags on me and I'm really heavy and I'm tired. I'm debating whether or not to call Uber. I'm like, no, no, it's not worth the Uber. Or I'm like, well, maybe, you know what? If I get like four gallons of this and this is on sale, all right, I'll call Uber. I'm going to get like... I have to like I have to really like sit and think about it. I'm like, all right, my food stamps just came in, and I just got checked. So I put all this together. I can, you know, I'm gonna go make a big trip. Winter Martin is a student in UDC's Urban Agriculture Certificate Program. The university is heading up the development of this farm, along with a coalition of about a dozen other groups. Starting this spring, residents like Winter Martin will be able to grow their own vegetables and sell them at an on-site farmers market. Organizers also hope to branch out to sell produce in local corner stores. It would be really nice if right next door to that, or a little block down the street, you know, by the carryout, you could pick up, you know, some cucumbers. That's what I'm hoping to see. Ward 7 residents travel some of the farthest distances in the district to get to their closest supermarket, according to a 2012 DC Hunger Solutions report. Sabine O'Hara is the dean of UDC's College of Agriculture, Urban Sustainability, and Environmental Sciences. We have households that are food insecure. In fact, 37% of households with children in this city report not having enough food or enough quality food during the course of the year. Along with making good food more accessible, another goal of the farm is to make better use of vacant property. Sharon Bradley was in charge of designing the site. She says that organizers were looking for a model that could be replicated across the city asking ourselves the questions, can, can we make these vacant parcels more valuable? Can we increase social capital and economic value and environmental performance um, when we transform those lots, even if it's on a temporary basis? In fact, East Capital Urban Farm is built to be totally portable, with movable farm beds and box gardens. Mobility is a necessity because the land is owned by the D.C. Housing Authority and is slated for development in the next two to three years. Okay, today we're going to be... Um dealing with a, a very important topic in sustainable agriculture. And organic Over in the vegetable garden, Che Axum, the director of the Center for Urban Agriculture and Gardening Education at UDC, is leading a class on cover crops. What these crops will do will kind of stay on the beds and kind of like a bank account. They'll uptake nutrients, hold the nutrients. Axum says education is an important component of the project. What we're doing here is really trying to get folks an understanding of the importance of the connection between soil and health. There'll be programs to teach kids how to grow vegetables. The farm will also work with older residents. For example, a food truck will do home delivery. Around here, we don't have a lot of transportation. 
And it could be that some of the seniors especially can't get out and get green vegetables. 83-year-old Evelyn Morse can see the farm from her window in one of the townhouses on the hill. She's out today with a rake in hand to help level ground for vegetable plots. You see how unlevel it is up there? So that's where I'll start. She's looking forward to growing her own vegetables here when the weather warms up. As soon as it's assigned, I will be having a plot here, and hopefully I will be working it uh, along with my son. I am 83 years old, and I just can't do it all by myself. <laughs> this three-acre plot is only the first in a network of urban farms organizers plan to develop on vacant lots across the district. I'm Vera Carruthers. Time for a break, but when we get back, when does a bike lane become more than just an infrastructure project? People are not going to stop riding and stop walking on the street because the city doesn't put in a bike lane. It's just more years of people getting hurt. That story and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. When Washingtonians elected Muriel Bowser as mayor last year, she promised to bring a fresh start to the city. A fresh start after the campaign scandals of her predecessor, Vincent Gray. Gray is still under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office. But in September, less than a year after Bowser took office, she confronted her own campaign finance controversy when WAMU's Patrick Madden uncovered a new political action committee bringing in unlimited donations from wealthy donors. It's called Fresh Pack, a nod to Bowser's campaign slogan. This week, organizers announced they'd be returning the money and shutting down the committee. Patrick Madden tells us how the story unfolded. Thank you, Mr. Lake. Um... Thank you, both of you. The scene, a run-of-the-mill D.C. council hearing. It's a typical land deal, except it doesn't go according to script. Ward 3 council member Mary Che starts grilling one of the real estate developers about his donations to Fresh Pack. Public records show that, that you donated $10,000 to the mayor's uh, quote-unquote Fresh Pack. Is that correct you gave $10,000? That is correct. Yes. And... Um, and you are doing business with the city at the same time. My question has to do with uh, who asked you to, to, to give $10,000, which is five times the amount in an ordinary election year you could give to a mayoral uh, a candidate. Who, who, who asked you to, to give that money? I, I don't recall who asked me, but um, it's well It was in July. Who asked for the $10,000 donation well just four months ago? The real estate developer, a guy named Bua Benite, says again and again he doesn't remember. But someone had to ask you, right? I mean, you didn't just wake up one morning and start writing a check to some unknown entity. Fresh Pack was founded by a handful of close associates of D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. The group found a wrinkle in the fine print of the city's campaign finance laws. Apparently, a PAC can raise unlimited donations during non-election years. In essence, it's a local super PAC. And right away, the group started hauling in big checks, more than $350,000 total. The money would be used to help elect council candidates who supported the mayor's agenda. That rubbed council members the wrong way. It's been disclosed, it's been 
plainly set out there that the purpose of this PAC is to provide a ton of money, unrestricted money, and it's to make it available to actually influence the votes of council members. But more concerning to many was the appearance of pay-to-play. In other words, donors writing big checks and in return winning lucrative contracts, land deals, or other benefits from the city. Fresh PAC's contributors were real estate developers like Benite, government contractors, and healthcare firms. WMU found, for example, that a dozen donors had ties to more than $70 million in city contracts. Others had been appointed by the mayor to powerful boards. Some even joined Bowser on a high-profile trade mission trip to China this week. Carl Racine, the city's attorney general, said his office had been deluged with citizens asking about Fresh Pack and what he called the flagrant return of pay-to-play politics. Citizens in the District of Columbia don't want that. They want that day to uh, have passed, and they really want um, pay-to-play politics to be over. The appearance of corruption isn't exactly new to D.C. politics. What is new is the use of outside groups with no campaign finance restrictions operating at the local level. It's something campaign finance watchdogs have warned about when super PACs go local. Robert Wexler is with the nonprofit City Ethics. There's a more direct relationship between contractors and developers at the local level than there is between you know, organizations that are seeking policy changes at the national level. Local PACs aren't being funded by rich donors with an ideological bent. At the local level, it's about everyday city business. You know, contracts, developments, grants, licenses. There's just so many ways in which local governments just hand out benefits. I think it's very troubling for those of us who think that reasonable limits on money in politics make sense. Rick Hassan is an expert on campaign finance at UC Irvine. He says the emergence of local groups like Fresh Pack could be a sign of things to come. I think that those with business before uh, city councils and, and before local governments are going to get more and more involved and they're going to have major influence over both who is elected as well as uh, what policies are favored or opposed by these local governments. Thanks to Citizens United and other Supreme Court decisions, there's little jurisdictions can do to block super PACs from injecting large sums of money into local elections. The only answer, experts like Wexler say, is public pressure on politicians. It'll be much harder for officials to set these kinds of things up. That seems to be what happened in D.C. Because you're giving giving a contribution to this unprecedented pact. Back at the council hearing, Councilmember Mary Che told the developer that she would keep asking questions about Fresh Pack until it disbanded. It's not personal, she told him. What I don't support is contributions to something that is fundamentally going to pollute our politics. In recent weeks, Fresh Pack seemed to cast a shadow over everything the administration was doing. The trade mission to China, the Pepco-Exelon merger, public land deals. Late Tuesday night, Fresh Pack's treasurer, Ben Soto, announced the committee would disband. As he wrote in an email, Fresh Pack had become too much of a distraction. I'm Patrick Madden. Head to 
Washington's Shaw neighborhood and you'll see signs of change everywhere. An empty lot turns into a beer garden. A derelict bread factory becomes chic co-working office space. And on just about every block, row houses are being renovated at a rapid clip. One other change of note, bicycles. Recent census data show one out of every 10 work trips starting in Shaw is on a bike. But as we hear from transportation reporter Martin DeCaro, adding bicycle infrastructure in this neighborhood isn't as simple as restriping the lanes. Sunday morning in Shaw. The doors open of a 115-year-old church. Ushers greet familiar faces. The church was built by the great-grandparents of some present-day congregants. And they raise their voices to the heavens together in worship. New Bethel Baptist Church on 9th Street is one of several historic black congregations in a neighborhood that exemplifies the gentrification sweeping over D.C. Members of the different churches recently gathered not to pray, but to protest. And the joy you can hear in these voices was replaced by anger. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a packed room in the Shaw Library, every seat taken, every inch of wall taken, the crowd overflowing out the door. The District Department of Transportation is holding its first public meeting on plans to build a two-mile protected bike lane cutting through Shaw. We know that when you see bike lanes, when you see Whole Foods, when you see Harris Teeter, when, when you see Chipotle's, Robert Price, a pastor at United House of Prayer and Shaw resident 40 years. That's nice establishments, but I know that's not for me. And I know that's not for a whole lot of us. You know what I'm saying, don't you? So the react, so the react, so the As you can hear in Price's words, there is more to this controversy than whether a bike lane project will eliminate parking spaces, at least from the perspective of longtime black residents who remember when the churches took the lead, rebuilding their neighborhood after the 1968 riots. But for newcomers, it is about a bike lane. So I'm also a resident here. I also pay taxes. I also vote. And I also ride my bike. Megan Peterman is 34. She's been living in Shaw less than a year, in D.C. about four years. She rides her bike to work. There's a serious problem in the city with displacement. I think there's a serious problem in the city with affordability. At the same time, I live here. This is my home. And the thing that I think is constant about cities is that they are always changing. And assuming anything else, I think, is naive. Balancing these competing interests is DDOT's responsibility. The agency is trying to fill a big gap in its network of protected bike lanes on the eastern side of downtown. DDOT Sam Zimbabwe leads the project. People of all ethnicities, all ages, are biking in the district. We're trying to make those facilities available and accessible to everybody and make them safe. DDOT has four different proposals for a bike lane on either 6th or 9th Street Northwest in Shaw. Each would take away one of the four existing lanes used by cars and possibly eliminate the back-end diagonal parking used by churchgoers on Sundays. We haven't made up our mind, and I think this process is intended to be an open and, and broad public process. This is not about bike lanes. Pastor Dexter Nuttall at New Bethel Baptist Church is not convinced the city's leadership is truly interested in his perspective. This is about a phenomenon and a mode of operating within the city that is considerate of a new dynamic in terms of the demographics. Uh, But what do you mean by that? 
Well, there, there is a new and changing demographic and appeal that the city has to those who are younger, those who are white often, and those who are of certain income and education experiences uh, and credentials. And that changes the economics of the city. He says black residents who've moved out of Shaw because they can't afford it anymore still belong to the church. They drive into D.C. on Sundays and they rely on on-street parking. And I would remind you of the limitations in parking that have already been imposed upon churches in the form of enhanced residential parking plan. Three years ago, the district made changes to parking rules in Shaw that reserve spaces on one side of each street to residents only is a plan that literally uh, limited parking in and around churches, in many cases, to half of what it was without the opportunity for church engagement and involvement and input. Nuttall says he's indifferent to bike lanes. What he wants from DDOT is an opportunity for real engagement. Given the decades of work the church has performed since former pastor Walter Fontroy began helping Shaw out of the ashes of the riots. Let's come to the table and let's talk. And quite frankly, I don't think that that's the responsibility of the bicycle lobby. They do what they do, or the faith community. That's the responsibility of the city to make sure that that happens. Bike lane supporters hope their concerns are not lost in the heat of the controversy. They say safety is a real problem. Greg Billing heads the Washington Area Bicyclist Association. So in 2014, just 2014, 12 bicyclists were struck and 16 pedestrians were struck on 6th Street in which either property damage or bodily injury was caused. And then on 9th Street, seven pedestrians and 14 bicyclists were hit. He says a bike lane buffered from traffic will make 6th or 9th Street safer for everyone, not just cyclists, because it'll slow down cars. He rejects the us versus them narrative forming around this story. We've had many members of the black cycling community that are young and old reach out to us and say, this this is important to me too. It's not a white-black issue. It's a, it's a change in our city. If change is inevitable, then maybe DDOT is being carried by rather than shaping the forces transforming Washington. But that won't minimize the agency's responsibility to engage all sides, a task all the more difficult when something as simple as a bike lane sparks arguments about race, economics, and displacement. I'm Martin DeCaro. Now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Lowe's Island, Virginia, and the stronghold neighborhood of Northeast DC. My name is Betsy Keoghan. I live in Lowe's Island. This is actually one of the oldest communities in this area. In Loudoun County, it is one of the older ones. Now, of course, it's not old like Leesburg is old. We're only about 20 years old, but compared to what's being built in Ashburn and you know, out in Western County, we've had enough time to kind of settle in and get the trees to develop and have uh, long-term neighborhoods. We are very interested in the outdoors here in Lowe's Island. I think that's one of the big draws. Not only is it very easy to go kayaking here, there are two very large parks on either side. We have all kinds of critters that come through the neighborhood because we're right near the river. We've had eagles this summer. We had a bear coming through. That was rather amusing. 
We are close enough to Reston, uh, which is only about six miles down the road, that we can go to all the cultural events they have and enjoy all the restaurants and activities, and yet we can quickly get away to our much quieter little suburban oasis out here. My name is Kirby Vining. Live in the Stronghold neighborhood of Washington, D.C., Northeast Washington, D.C., since 1986 in this house, in this neighborhood. If I walk on my front porch, I look to the right and I see McMillan Park, and off in the distance, I see the clock tower of Founders Hall of Howard University across the reservoir in McMillan Park. I can see the National Cathedral in the extreme distance. So I feel to an extent I've got the best of both the country and the city walking out of my row house in downtown Washington and having these things on either end. The first families to move in here, uh, this is way before this name Stronghold was attached to it, were German, almost entirely German. The Prospect Hill Cemetery, which is behind that wall behind us, was the cemetery of the German American Association of Washington, D.C. A lot of the community here has been here for up to five generations. There's definitely a, a network. Uh, there's something that gets to people who live in Stronghold that that bond doesn't, uh, doesn't go away. We heard from Kirby Vining in Stronghold and Betsy Keoghan in Lowe's Island. They spoke with Vera Carruthers and John Hines. To see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, we're looking for character as well as talent. America's oldest continuously active musical group seeks its youngest soloist. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This Veterans Day week marks the 240th birthday of the U.S. Marine Corps. It was on November 10, 1775, that the Second Continental Congress passed an act forming one of America's most elite fighting forces. And it was 23 years later, in 1798, that the United States Congress passed an act forming what would become one of the Marines' most distinguished units— the United States Marine Band. The band is now the oldest continuously active professional musical organization in the country. It's known as the President's Own, since its primary mission is to provide music for the President of the United States. It's played at every U.S. presidential inauguration since Thomas Jefferson's, and these days it performs at the White House up to 200 times a year. But this virtuoso group is nothing if not flexible. Right now you're hearing the group in a more traditional mode, playing Stars and Stripes Forever at the annual birthday celebration of former director John Philip Sousa, held last week at Congressional Cemetery. But as current director, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Fettig points out, these pros can play just about anything. We are set up to be able to provide any kind of music virtually that might be needed from the Marine Band and our musicians are incredibly talented, uh, incredibly diverse in their skill set as well. And if there's a skill that they don't have that we need as an organization, they learn how to do it. So we're talking everything from jazz to 
country. I got a brand new girlfriend when jumped off the deep end. To world music. But beyond playing music, a major focus of the president's own is promoting music and the role it plays in the lives of young people. And now it's seeking a young person to solo with the band at an upcoming performance here in D.C. The 2016 Concerto Competition is open to high schoolers across the country, inviting performers of woodwind, brass, or percussion to pick a concerto from a designated list and submit a recording of themselves playing it. When I visited Colonel Fettig at the Marine Barracks Annex in southeast D.C., where the band has been rehearsing and performing for about 10 years now, he explained the inspiration behind the competition. We have uh, expanded our educational outreach in every possible way we can imagine. When we go out on our national concert tours, we try to get into the schools in every community that we visit and have an interaction with, with kids of all levels from elementary school up through collegiate. We have extensive educational programs all throughout the Washington, D.C. area as well. We put on an annual family concert as part of our regular concert series to invite people to bring their kids and enjoy a theatrical presentation and learn a little bit more about classical music and about band music. And so when the time came to uh, brainstorm ideas to expand those efforts even further, we thought, what would be better than giving talented young musicians a chance to come and perform with the Marine Band? And a lot of times, budding musicians simply need opportunities to do something special. We have upwards of, of 100 or more applications every year for this program, and we whittle that down and we invite seven or eight finalists to come to Washington, D.C., and they perform live in a recital format, and then we choose our winner, and then they come back to uh, perform a solo in front of one of our audiences here in Washington, D.C. And I understand it's when the finalists are here that they are invited to have a coaching session or a rehearsal with a band member? They are. So these are incredibly accomplished musicians in their own right. But since this is part of our educational outreach, we want to offer everybody an opportunity to meet with our professionals and have a chance to get some feedback on their performance. And so uh, there is that opportunity when they come to town to spend some time with our principal players in many cases, uh, get some feedback on their performance, and hopefully make it even better the following day when they compete for the competition. And students are also required to send in a letter of recommendation. What are you looking for in that letter? We're looking for character as well as talent. You know, I think it takes both to succeed uh, in the musical environment. Um, we're looking for someone who has a passion for what they do. They have discipline. They're really interested in learning and becoming better at their craft. Someone who you get the sense that they're going to take that talent and this opportunity and they're going to maximize that in their development as a young musician. So over the past few years, as you've watched these students come and compete, what has it been like for the winner? I mean, that must be a mind-blowing experience. The winners have been, in some cases, a little bit surprised, a little shocked. But in every single case, the winner has been incredibly appreciative of the opportunity to uh, perform with the Marine Band. And in fact, I have heard from many of our winners over the years after they've performed for the band. This is an experience that has resonated with them for years to come. Just this past weekend, I was at the University of Michigan representing the band, doing some uh, master classes with the musicians there, and I met one of the former concerto competition winners, who is now a freshman at the University of Michigan, uh, and he made a point to come and talk to me and tell me how much that experience meant to him. It was something that he had dreamed of since he was a little kid, and that dream finally came to fruition, and even now as he's preparing for his career as a professional in college, 
that experience resonates with him and, and I think will stick with him for a very long time. And that means a lot to me. It's really very special. When we go out and, and share the Marine Band with kids all over the country, we are essentially preparing the next generation of musicians and music lovers uh, to appreciate and support what it is that we do. We are trying to preserve our art, to preserve the value of music, uh, the power of music, and in a larger sense, our culture as a country. That was Marine Band Director Lieutenant Colonel Jason Fettig. The President's Own is accepting applications for the 2016 Concerto Competition through November 16th. For more information, visit our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can check out an audio slideshow of the band's recent performance at the grave of John Philip Sousa. Again, it's at metroconnection.org. Ask the members of any band, orchestra, or chorus, and they'll no doubt tell you prepping for a performance takes a ton of work. But as Lauren Landau tells us, for one local choir, an upcoming concert is requiring a whole different kind of effort. All right, let's go! Andiamo. That's Scott Tucker, Artistic Director of the Choral Arts Society of Washington. Okay, with your music open, uh, whether or not you need it. At this rehearsal a few weeks ago, most of the singers were still reading from their scores. That won't be the case when they perform Brahms' A German Requiem this Sunday. I mean, I think you can give a magnificent performance holding music. I really do. But I think that there is a way in which, without that barrier of music, uh, the performer is both vulnerable in a way to the audience, and also the effect can be that much more powerful. And while the latest three-minute pop song might quickly get stuck in your head, Brahms is not Beyonce. It's about 70 minutes long, and it's all in German, which is challenging for a lot of these folks because they don't speak German. So it's a big task, and you know you can read their anxiety <laughs> sometimes on their faces. He says the only way to accomplish such an overwhelming assignment is to take it in pieces, setting small goals along the way. His singers memorize one movement a week. How they do that varies. I asked myself, how is it that as a, as a teenager, I knew by heart a thousand pop songs in English. First tenor David Flaxman is in his first year with the chorus. And it's partly because you hear it all the time. It's partly because the, the lyrics become inevitable. I get bugged driving up and down the same old strip. It can only follow that I got to find a new place where the kids are hip. For many of the singers, translating the libretto was the first step. Flaxman uses flashcards to study the German words. But in addition to the lyrics, there's also the music. I'm listening to the entire score almost every day. I'm listening to learning tracks where you're just hearing a piano performance of it, where in my case the tenor line is, is more pronounced. I'm listening to that every day. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to attack my brain in every possible direction. First I take a two-hour bike ride and I listen to the entire work while I cycle along the Potomac. Second bass, Scott Pritchett. Then I go back and I get the score and I listen to the score and read the music as I do it and sing to myself. And then I actually hand write out the verses. Second soprano, Julia Vetta, made it her daily soundtrack. I found out this summer that we were going to be performing it from memory and panicked a little bit and put it on loop and have been listening to it effectively nonstop since June, 
on the commute downtown with my two children and back, all of us sort of chanting the words together in German. It's working, and not just for mom. Tod, wo ist dein Stahel? Hölle, wo ist dein Sieg? Ist dein Sieg? Hölle, wo ist dein Sieg? We have German friends who heard her do this and said, do you realize what she's saying? Death, where is thy sting? Hell, where is thy victory? Nelson Dellis is what's known as a mental athlete. He's the reigning USA memory champion, a title he's won four times. A lot of the things we do at these competitions, they seem really hard. Why do they seem hard? Because they're abstract things, really abstract. I mean, a 500-digit number, ugh, it's disgusting, you know, to think of. To most people, a deck of cards or a series of digits, they're just symbols. That's why Dellis assigns meaning to the meaningless by visualizing numbers as something else. My family, loved ones, friends, superheroes, you know, everything that's connected to me and is something that I have an emotional attachment to in one way or another. And that makes it almost natural to memorize, a lot easier, a lot more fun. He approaches memory the same way the ancient Greeks and Romans did, by creating associations between new information and stuff he already knows. You know, this was a way of life back then. It was to have a good memory was normal because there were no devices to store information. You had to know it to pass it down and to, to be an intellectual, you know. Memory was the norm. There was an art form to it. There are choirs that regularly sing from memory. Choral arts just isn't one of them. But this concert has to be special. It's dedicated to the choir's founder, Norman Scribner, who died earlier this year. Scott Pritchett and Julia Vetta remember how much this piece meant to the former artistic director. He adored it. And when he started out as a musician in his late teens and early 20s, he enlisted in the army, and the anecdote is is that he took two things. One of them was a footlocker, and the other was a copy of the Brahms Requiem. <laughs> the only thing he took with him was his music, his score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess he didn't have it memorized. <laughs> Brahms Requiem was the last piece Korlach performed under his baton. This Sunday, the chorus returns to that work, and the stage where Scribner took his final bow. Only this time, the singer's eyes will be on the audience, not their sheet music. I'm Lauren Landau. You can catch the Choral Arts Society of Washington performing Brahms' Requiem this Sunday at 4 at the Kennedy Center. Arts education isn't always a top priority for schools, especially in districts where kids are struggling to master the basics of reading and math. But in Prince George's County, one of the lowest-scoring districts in Maryland, educators are pioneering a new approach. Arts integration. They're using music to teach math or dance to teach science, with the idea that arts can help engage students and boost achievement. It started as a pilot program last year. Now, as Matthew Schwartz tells us, the county plans to bring arts integration to all 211 schools within the next five years. Last week, I didn't know much about the water cycle, But then I heard a song about science, written by a Prince George's County elementary school teacher. Evaporation, sun warms oceans, water vapor rises to the sky. Ari Stern teaches music at Rogers Heights Elementary in Prince George's County, Maryland. And since this school year started, he has also taught arts integration, which uses music and dance, plays and visual arts to help students learn subjects that haven't traditionally been taught in song. For me, music has always been an essential element of approaching 
life. And so when something is boring, I look to music to liven it up. When something is sad, I look to music to create uplifting feelings. Um, and that, that can be said not just for music, but for all the arts. Stern was hired as a music teacher last year, and he pushed to get Rogers Heights on board with the county's arts integration program. Rogers Heights is the 41st school to officially inject arts into its core curriculum. In math class, students were taught about the different kinds of instruments they could use in a rock band. Which drum kit do you want in your band's sound? What kind of feeling do you want to generate in your audience? Then the kids were shown the price tag. It turns out arts integration isn't just about teaching students the core subjects. It's also about teaching them how to work together, in this case to figure out how to split up their limited funds to buy the best instruments. I'm going to give you now one minute for a quick group discussion. What do you want most of all? How are you going to keep control over your budget while getting the sound that you want? In an era when standardized tests have been dominating the national conversation, Proponents of arts integration say it gives students the ability to move beyond test scores into real learning. John Sashini heads up the arts integration program in the county. What happened in before when we were, were working with the standardized test, it all became kind of the drill and kill, get ready for the test kind of thing. And now we see, hey, kids need so much more. They, they need creativity. They need communication. They need to collaborate. These skills are essential. If we don't have that, my goodness, how are they going to make it in, in, in this society? Prince George's County Schools haven't exactly led the state in educational rankings. The system is often at or near the bottom of Maryland's 24 school districts. Just last week, the county learned how it did on the new Common Core Park test. Students didn't do so well scoring lower on average than their peers across the state in 10 out of 15 areas. But county officials are optimistic. With the park results as a baseline, they think arts integration can only help. I'm not going to say that there's causation between arts integration and test scores increasing, but I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen everywhere I've been. So there's a strong correlation. Be between the two. A wealth of research shows that arts integration helps kids increase their problem-solving skills, enhance their social development, and remember the material better. Scientific studies show that the use of arts in education engages the whole brain, improving retention. But students don't need academic studies to know that it works. I think that um, arts integration helps us learn a lot. Victor Munoz is a fifth grader at Rogers Heights. When you hear a song and you hear the rhythm, and the beat, it stays in your mind, so that helps you remember. Music has been used forever to help kids learn. I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. But very few school districts have embraced a philosophy of using arts throughout the curriculum. Prince George's is on the leading edge here. Sandra Rupert is director of the Arts Education Partnership, a national coalition of more than 100 education, arts, and governmental organizations. The county is a leader, she says, because it has a strong leader. You do have to have a strong leader who sends that message to schools that this is important and it is necessary for students to be successful. The county's leader is Dr. Kevin Maxwell. It's his third year as superintendent here. Last year he was honored as Maryland Superintendent of the Year. He has received national recognition for his embrace of the arts. It focuses kids on things like innovation, uh, creativity, and imagination. And it, it, our education can't just be about rote facts. 
you know, memorizing things and, and learning lists of words and, and vocabulary. It has to be about using them, making them purposeful and useful. When Maxwell became superintendent and traveled around the district, he says he was appalled that Prince George's County Elementary School students were seeing an art teacher once every eight or nine weeks for 30 minutes at a time. I will just be honest, that is not an art program. It's not going to ground our children in the value of the arts. Uh, and, and so, you know, we began adding our teachers. But it's tough to add enough art teachers to give 128,000 students a lesson every week. So in addition to ramping up the art program, the district has also been infusing arts into the broader curriculum. Maxwell hopes it will encourage kids not just to learn for a test, but to learn for life. I think the arts are, are uh, imperative for us as a, as a culture and as a country. I, I don't know what life would be without music. You don't become lifelong learners by memorizing vocabulary lists. You become a lifelong learner by learning to love words. I believe that you have to teach kids to value the learning. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Before we wrap things up today, we'll turn the microphone over to you to read from your emails and messages about recent editions of Metro Connection. In response to our story on lowering the voting age in D.C., listener Mariah wrote in to say, not only should we lower the voting age to 16, but eventually 12. We charge 12-year-olds who commit murder as adults and sentence them to juvenile jail. They deserve to have a say. And after we reported on the Death with Dignity bill making its way through the D.C. Council, Bradley commented that loopholes in the legislation, quote, eviscerate intended safeguards. He went on to say, it is dangerous public policy. And a big thanks to all of you who had complimentary words about last week's show. Listeners like Nicole W., who tweeted, I feel like I say this almost every week, but Metro Connection is just so damn good. Do you have a comment about a story you heard on the show? Let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org, find us on Facebook, or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can link to our weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. Mm-hmm.